while the Monocle Weekly takes a temporary break, we've continued conversing with some of culture's top movers and shakers around the world. In this special interview, Andrew Muller catches up with a legendary figure from the world of Aussie rules football, a world I must confess to knowing rather little about, but which Andrew literally wrote a book on. Andrew is here. Tell me what we're about to hear, Andrew. Uh, It's a rare interview with Adam Goods, who doesn't do a lot of press for reasons which will probably become clear as people hear this interview. Um, In trying to explain Adam Goods to an international audience, I think there's two ways to think of him. One is if any listener just thinks of whatever sport they're into and then thinks of maybe the dozen greatest players of all time of it. He's one of those guys. He's, a, by any measure, one of the greatest players ever to play Australian rules football. Two-time premiership winner with the Sydney Swans, once as captain, twice winner of the Brownlow Medal, which is the prize given annually to the game's best player. And he played more games in the AFL than anybody except eight other players in the game's history. Uh, But beyond that, there's his work as an advocate for Australia's Indigenous people, of which he is one, um, and his advocacy in that cause won him the Australian of the Year uh, accolade uh, in 2014, which is a self-evidently prestigious prize, you know, an award given while he was still playing. Um, and because of that, or partly because of that, he became the centre of a controversy about race in football and how it was represented and addressed. So I, I guess you could think of him also as a, a kind of Australian Colin Kaepernick figure as well. Well, it sounds like a fantastic time to hear this, and we'll get to it very, very soon. But just before we do, for our audience less familiar with Australian rules, who might be thinking of soccer, uh, I'm given to understand that it's it's a somewhat more brutal game uh, it's 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 rough uh, we do talk uh, at the top of the interview about how we would begin to describe this game our people play to an international audience people who do see it for the first time are often bewildered but I honestly for the, the curious listener um, there are a few better places to start than just going to YouTube and looking up Adam Good's highlight reel because he he really was quite a footballer and I think he was one of those athletes who transcends the game in which he's participating. If you watch him, you kind of understand that something quite special is occurring. And of course, any curious listeners can learn more about Aussie Rules football by picking up a certain book uh, called, I think it's called Khan. Khan, C-A-R-N copies. I believe a few copies are still available. Um, Well, look, without further ado, I think that's enough from us. Let's take a listen to the interview. I want to start with this game Australians play. As an Australian who's lived outside of Australia a long time, I'm occasionally asked to try to describe it. uh, And I never really know where to start with that, because it's not really like anything that anybody else plays. How would you describe the Australian game to to someone who's never seen it? Um, I'm interested, Andrew, to hear how you do explain it to your friends, mate. Could you lead me me into that? Uh, I I mostly say that it's a very swift, uh, very skillful, often extremely violent game. I I generally find that if you send them YouTube clips of the big punch-ups, that's kind of a good gateway for for getting non-Australians interested. (laughs) 
For sure, yeah, that's definitely the uh, the eighties and earlier definition of our game. I think AFL is a high intensity, high scoring. High impact, players get hit from 360 degrees. They run at, you know, incredible speeds and distances over two hours. They all kick the ball, hand pass the ball, catch the ball, bounce the ball. So the skill level of the individuals um, is very high to be able to do all of these things. And we have 18 players on the field each at any one time and four on the bench. So for me, if I explain it to Americans, I say, we don't wear pads or helmets. And they're like, what? You don't wear pads, helmets? And then to football fans, so soccer fans, I would say, we got some of the most talented players in Australia playing the game who get to score every week goals and take big marks. You know, I'm a massive Premier League fan and you know, to see the best players in the world playing in the Premier League and in, in Spain and Italy, they're incredible to watch, but it can be so frustrating to watch them also because they don't get to score every week because of the defensive mindset. Now, I was interested in asking you about coming up as a kid through, you started playing soccer and then gravitated to the Australian game. My own journey at around that point in my life was realising how incredibly bad I was at playing Australian football. Was there a particular point you can recall at which you realised you were not merely better than average, but actually really properly good at this? I think um, I didn't really have a choice. We moved from Adelaide to country Victoria and yeah, I loved my soccer and I went to sign up for the local, local soccer team. They didn't have an under-14s team. Uh, they didn't have any junior teams, actually. And my mum said that I should probably give AFL a go. And I'd never really played it up until that point. And I was looking at all the other kids who were under-14s and I, I reckon I would have had a foot on every single kid. So I was like, OK, I'm, I'm taller than everyone. Um, I just got to chase around this oval-shaped ball that bounces at different angles, and I wasn't very good at picking the ball up below my knee. So luckily for me, it, it did come to me quite naturally, and I really enjoyed it. And to be honest, it, it became a way for me to break down barriers from moving around from small country town to small country town, that once kids saw that I could kick a footy and take a big mark, they were like, oh, that goodsy kid, he must be all right. So you're a teenager in the mid-90s, and that's a time when Indigenous players are becoming more prominent. There'd been that first wave, I guess, in the early 80s, the Cracker Brothers and Morris Rioli coming over from Western Australia. But by the mid-1990s, Indigenous players are starting to become more prominent, the likes of Michael Long, Gavin Wanganeen, Gilbert McAdam, and of course, Nicky Winmar making his famous stand against racist supporters in 1993. Did, did you identify... With them specifically? Not really. I wasn't an AFL supporter. I didn't watch a lot of games growing up. Uh, I remember working at a friend's hot dog van in Elizabeth in South Australia. We reckon we would have been about 12. And at half time, we made ourselves a burger and went and watched the, the league game. And one of the players who was the best on field by a mile, kicked five goals, jumping on everyone's head, was running around. And he was an Indigenous player. And I had to ask someone, who's that guy? And they go, oh, that's Gilbert McAdam. He's an absolute gun. And that was before he made it to the big league. And I was just like, wow. And I'd never seen an Indigenous person, you know, running around at that level, you know, just dominating the way that he did. So when you become an AFL player and you become 
an increasingly prominent one. I think you, you make your debut in 1999, but in, in 2003, you win for the first time, first of two times, the Brownlow Medal, which is the, the prize given every season to that year's best player. Did you start to feel that there was an expectation that you would speak about Indigenous issues or, or that you would have things to say about Indigenous issues? And did that feel comfortable to you? I remember my first interview that I did when I got to the Swans, I would have been about 19 and, you know, I was asking questions, they were asking questions about football and I was like, okay, this is cool. And then he said, oh, so what does it feel like to be a role model for Indigenous people? And in my mind, I'm thinking, I don't even know what it means to be an Indigenous person. I know I'm Aboriginal, but I have no connection to my people, no connection to my culture. I don't know exactly where my people come from. And for me, it was quite daunting. So that prompted me that, okay, if I'm going to be asked more about this stuff, I need to start to learn about who I am as an Aboriginal person so that I could talk to this. So myself and Michael O'Loughlin then signed up to Eora TAFE here in Sydney and, and did a diploma in Aboriginal studies. And that's when I started to go on my journey on being and having the voice that I've had in the last 20 years. Did it feel like there was, I don't know whether you'd call it an opportunity or an obligation, but it is the case that in Australia, the Australian Football League is where Indigenous people are most visible. I think if I've got the numbers right, about 3% of the population identifies as Indigenous, but it's a bit over 10% of Australian football playing lists. Um, Did you feel like it was something you had to embrace? I always embraced my Aboriginality because that's all people saw and that's all people teased me about. And when people teased me about it in school and high school, it was just water off a duck's back because I actually didn't know what it meant to be Indigenous. So the way the things that they were calling me just didn't really hurt me. It wasn't until I did a diploma in Aboriginal studies and I started to ask more questions about why aren't we taught this at school? Why do we not talk about the massacres? Why don't we talk about... Um, us not having treaty and sovereignty in this country. And I had all these questions. And for me, I was like, I need guidance. I need leaders around me to help me go on this journey. And that's when I learned as an Indigenous person, as soon as you become successful and you have a platform and a voice, you need to help our people. And is it an obligation? I don't think so. From my point of view, that's something that I wanted to do and I wanted to be. Well, I guess at that point, we could get on to the two incidents, I suppose you can call them, which form the, the basis for the film Australian Dream. There's there's the one in 2013 when you call out a racist insult from the crowd, and there's the other in 2015 where you, you dance to celebrate a goal, which prompts a, a thoroughly bizarre reaction in all sorts of quarters, which we will get into. Um, I want to set a bit of context for our, our international listeners. Both of those events in 2013 2013 and 2015 took place in the AFL's annual Indigenous Round, which is when the game celebrates the contribution of Indigenous peoples. The the teams wear Guernsey's redrawn as Aboriginal artworks, there's ceremonies before the games, and so on. If you go back to the event in 2013, where you, you were abused from the crowd, did it feel heightened to you 
both because it was Indigenous Round and both, I was wondering this at the time, that you personally had played an extraordinarily good game that day. You had taken Collingwood to pieces pretty much single-handedly and towards the end of it, you have to hear that. Yeah, so for me, that that night was extremely special because we got to open in the Indigenous Round by being the first teams to play. So it was a pretty big night. Everyone was watching with the only game on TV on a Friday night. My mum designed the Guernsey that we were wearing, so it was her design and tribute to my late auntie who passed. So that made it even more special. And the fact that I was playing against my old team that I supported through high school, Collingwood. So all these things were just lining up for me to just have a massive, incredible game. And I think what happened in those last 10 minutes of that game when I ran close to the boundary and heard that comment, it really did shock me. And like anything on a football field, when I'm at my absolute best, I react instinctively. And that's what I did in calling that girl out. And, you know, I hadn't been racially abused on the football field or outside for maybe seven or eight years. So it really did catch me off, off guard. And to happen in an Indigenous round, wearing my mum's Indigenous design Guernsey after like you said, you know, tearing Collingwood apart that game, it really did shock me and, you know, I called it out. The runner then came out to me and said, have a rest, mate, the game's over. And, you know, that's when, you know, I walked off the ground and I walked straight into the rooms and, yeah, I just broke down. It was it was really um, all that trauma that I'd learnt about and that trauma, understanding what my mum been through, being part of the stolen generation, it really hit me. And it just hit me that I knew this person was a young person in the crowd. I knew this person was just copying what other people were saying in the crowd. And for me to, you know, the, the, the thought process in my head was, it doesn't matter how good I am on this footy field, to them, I'm just an ape. To them, I'm just a, a, an animal. And, and that was the you know, what racism does to people. Um, It questions your self-worth. And for me, as a very proud Indigenous person, it cut me to my core. And like you said, it, it, it put the wheels in motion for why we're talking tonight. Well, the 2015 incident, though, that seems the wrong word for it, because, again, I remember watching this game on TV at the time, and it didn't occur to me at all that anything untoward had gone on. And again, it's Indigenous round. Your team, the Sydney Swans, had beaten up Carlton pretty badly. You scored a goal and you celebrated by doing an Indigenous dance. Now, what it did have in common with 2013 was in both cases, it ignited just this absolutely bizarre media circus. Nobody appeared capable of actually having or wanting an intelligent conversation about it. In in both instances, were you surprised by how ridiculous and how unpleasant and how quickly the response got? What I've loved about doing this documentary and doing the media internationally is there's no bias. And even though you're Australian, Andrew, there's no precedence on, you know, the questions that you ask. And unfortunately, the media here in Australia, when it comes to Indigenous people, Indigenous people haven't always been spoken about positively in the media. And when there's an opportunity to get the boot in, they do that. And 
for me, it was just another opportunity for the media to, to do, unfortunately, some bad reporting on the incident and bad bad reporting on what actually happened. And I, unfortunately, looked to the media as being the ones that were, were able to create a bit of a shitstorm that, you know, really turned into a bushfire and it was pretty, pretty horrible. But in 2015 in particular, when you walked off the field, did it occur to you at all that your dance was going to become a thing? Because, it, I, again, I was watching this game from my lounge room in London and I just thought, well, you know, an Indigenous player has scored a gold in Indigenous round, he's done an Indigenous dance. <laughs> that seems like a reasonable thing to do. And Correct. I, I did, I'm, I'm pleased to hear you say that because I, I remember reading the Australian media reaction in the days afterwards and just thinking, I have been away a long time or there is something going on here I have completely missed. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I got a sense of it, Andrew, when the roving reporter on the ground came up to me straight away after we won the game to interview me. And it was Matthew Richardson, and he you could tell by the look on his face he didn't want to ask the questions about the dance and really prod with it. And I just said, oh, yeah, mate, it's Indigenous round. I thought it was a great opportunity to do a dance that in 2009 a group of under-16 Indigenous kids taught myself and a lot of the other AFL Indigenous players this war cry because these kids represent Australia as an Indigenous team and they're playing against New Zealand, Fiji, the Solomon Islands and before every game the Australian Indigenous boys would have to stand there and watch the haka and watch a war cry by these teams and they had nothing culturally to do back to them so they created this war cry through each other's cultures and language and I was just blown away that these kids came together to do it and for me that was a tribute to those kids for being brave and courageous not only to come up with the war cry, but to teach us AFL players. And for me to be able to do that on that big stage after kicking a goal was a celebration of culture and a celebration of where we've come as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people on our journey. Because what happened in the weeks after that, of course, is that there becomes this thing of you being persistently booed while you're playing. And that's that's not necessarily that unusual. There have always been players that, you know, a plurality of fans decide are a villain and they're going to boo them. But there was clearly something more hostile underpinning that. Did you start to feel like, and this was my own potted theory of it, is there just a cohort of... Australians that still has some sort of possibly even visceral difficulty with what that dance represented, which, as they saw it, was a a powerful, triumphant, successful black man. Is that still a thing that people cannot quite get their heads around? I don't know. It's a very interesting question you ask, Andrew, and I think um, it's probably I'm not the right person to, to answer that. I think talking to the people on the streets, I think... You know, the people that I meet, the people that I socialise with, I would say, no, there isn't. But then from what happened in the media and what happened in the games before and after the war dance, um, you'd have to question that. So for me, you know, I'm in a place in my life right now that I am proud of what I've done. I'm even prouder now as a father and that's my my life and pathway going forward. Um do I have to see and deal with those people if they're out there? Well, I don't anymore. 
there's no platform for them to boo or say the things that they were saying to me anymore. So in my world, no, there isn't um, those people. But unfortunately, we all know that there are those people out in the world that will take that opportunity to, to have that voice when they can. Towards the end of 2015, when you were enduring that hostility, you took a week out of the game. There was there was some suggestion that you might have quit for good, that you might not come back. But that week you sat out, there were a lot of gestures and statements of support from other players, not just your teammates and not just Indigenous players. We saw a lot of non-Indigenous players wearing wristbands in the colours of the Aboriginal flag, wearing your number for the coin toss. Uh, Did things like that mean anything to you at the time? No, not at the time, mate. I was in a pretty dark place at that time and it's even now I find it uncomfortable to watch that and you know I've got a box of articles that someone gifted me and letters from people that have written to me in support and even even that I'm I'm just not ready to dive into to that to be honest mate I'm I'm a forward projecting person and I know I've learnt something from that period of time and you know what I've learnt from that period of time is you know through the documentary there is a way forward there's some learning outcomes and you know at that time that love and that support I knew it was there but it wasn't something that helped me during that period what helped me through that period of time was knowing in my heart that this was going to be my last year as a footballer and in six more games time Six games time from that point on, my career would be over and I wouldn't be giving people the platform to do what they were doing up until that point in time. I mean, when you say that was a dark place, did you ever contemplate doing things like not just leaving the game but leaving the country? No, not to to that point. Leaving the game was the biggest one. You know, when I took that week off, that's when I, I made the decision in my mind that this was going to be my last season. I then told the CEO of the football club a week later and didn't tell my teammates or the coaches until after that very last game. I think that there was another, I guess, background to those two events, which was in between 2013 and 2015, you were named Australian of the Year in 2014 for your your advocacy work for the the founding of the Go Foundation with Michael O'Loughlin. Um, Again, going back to the booing in 2015, did it feel like maybe there were people offloading some weird resentment of you winning that award? I've got no doubt, you know, that booing started about midway through 2014. And I think the media played another role in telling lies about my speech that I made on Australia Day when I won the award, saying I was being divisive and that I needed, as an, being a, as an Aboriginal leader, I needed to say things to bring us all together. And that was a real shame because all I spoke about in my speech, which you see in the documentary, is about us coming together and that we need to focus on all the things that are good but also all the things that bring us together more than the things that are different about us so that was a real shame for me and I believe that's when people started after me winning that award and from their point of view no doubt that I was being rewarded for you know getting a young girl kicked out of a footy stadium. The film is called The The Australian Dream. Does it strike you that your story is 
well, obviously your story is in many respects peculiarly Australian because it, it revolves around Indigenous Australia and the Indigenous Australian game. But racism in sport is a, a worldwide problem. Do you, do you see international parallels, whether it's with the absurd brouhaha around Colin Kaepernick taking a knee to protest police brutality about the, you know, the prospect or the actuality of European soccer teams walking off the pitch when one of their teammates is abused. Do you, do you feel that your story is connected to those stories? We're all connected. Any minority in our, anyone's society is connected to this story because racism, unfortunately, is a part of every community. And I did a trip to Sri Lanka in 2004 and I couldn't believe the discrimination in that country. And that trip was for me was part of Reconciliation Australia taking us over there to learn about how people came together after the tsunami had hit there in the years earlier. And here's a group of people that all look the same. But because of Tamil, because of cultural differences that's the way that they were discriminating against each other and that really blew my mind because I was like hang on a minute you guys all look the same like but it was the cultural beliefs it was the religious beliefs and for me I was like okay well this racism isn't just a black white issue this is a issue that is global and in making the documentary we knew that telling the Australian dream and asking people, you know, what is your Australian dream here in Australia would resonate with people outside of Australia and their journey, whether it was their religious beliefs, whether it was their whatever it might be, that you can connect to this story of being marginalised against for, for what you believe in. We are unfortunately running out of time, so I want to talk quickly about where you are now and, and what you've got coming up next. When you left the game in 2015, and again for international audiences, there, there is a tradition whereby when the great players retire, they get a lap of honour on grand final day at the Melbourne Cricket Ground. You declined to take that lap for, I think, fairly understandable reasons. Can you envisage a time at which you would turn up for that if the invitation is, is still open, that you would go out and take your, your lap of honour and, and the applause you deserved as, as one of the game's greats? No, Andrew, I've, I've, I've had my time. I did go back. Um, the Swans do the same tradition and I did do that the following year and that to me was me being able to say thank you to the crowd for their love and support for 18 years. You know, I was a kid when I came to Sydney. I was 17 years old. I just finished school and, you know, I walked away from that place having spent more years at that football club than I had with my mother. So that was my home and family. And I learnt so much about culture, language that, you know, will stay with me forever. So that was an opportunity for me to you know, say thank you to those people who are at the game and those people who are watching on TV. So if, if that's all behind you, what do you see as being ahead of you? If you Presumably you don't see yourself as involved with football in the future. No, definitely not involved in football. So for me, you know, I spent a big part of my football career talking about the issues and the problems. And now my life's all about the solutions 
I'm an Indigenous business owner. I own a couple of businesses. I help Indigenous business to build capabilities to work in the defence and infrastructure space. I work with about 90 of those businesses. I have a foundation which we have over 250 Indigenous kids on academic scholarships. I'm helping the next generation in New South Wales and South Australia on scholarships. So they're the ways I can make a difference now and they're the solutions that I can provide. I'll continue to call things out when I see it and feel it, but you know, my time in the media, in the AFL is behind me and you know, I'll, be, I'll really be part of being part of the solutions to, to help grow the capability and, and the strength of, of our people. Adam Goods, uh, thank you for joining us. I will just say before you go, though, that except when you were playing against Geelong, it was always <laughs> a pleasure watching you play. Uh, thank you very much. Andrew, absolute pleasure. Cheers, mate. Adam Muller there talking to Adam Goods and one-time Australian of the Year. The Monocle Weekly is on a break, but do keep an eye on our website. We'll have more interviews with leading figures from the arts, culture, business, and, as you've just heard, sports. Until next time, I'm Augustin Machilari. Our studio manager was May Lee Evans. Goodbye.